See, we don't always pull out the classic songs. Getting some new stuff there. Childish Gambino. Love that in Redbone. And there's a very good reason why we picked that song, and you can probably guess. But we'll we'll get into that in just a little bit. Welcome. This is the Fright Club Podcast. I'm George Wolf. I'm Hope Madden. And we are from MadWolf.com. And we are saying thank you, thank you, thank you for all the great response. We kind of figured we would get mm-hmm. it for uh, the late Bill Paxton. We talked about his horror output last week and it got a lot of great response it and it was it was fun to do in a, in a sad way but it is always fun to talk about him yeah well he yeah he just he did so many just iconic and really fun horror films and uh, most people i think were really happy about it people said really lovely things about it but it was funny monty and dzak had a funny back and forth about the ranking which um which was for me almost more fun than the podcast yeah, was <laughs> because they we just kind of removed ourselves and just watched them go back and forth and that's fine we love bringing people together that's right um, Sarah Ginsburg and our friend Steve Press, they said lovely things as well. But on the whole, I just think people, you know, they liked the attention that that Bill Paxton was getting. Yeah. Uh, so thank you for that. It was it was fun to do in a bittersweet way, as I said. So um, but we move on to social anxieties horror. But before we get to that, speaking of social, let's congratulate Knack Mac. That's right. Our old buddy Knack Mac, senior Stephen King correspondent, got engaged. Congratulations. But here's the funny thing. He says uh, she's not really a horror fan. She could come around. She could come around. And that's that's going to be your your goal, your 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 ambition. No, Knack it Mac. isn't. I know. No. Your goal is just to be happy. That's right. So we wish you... Wish you all the best. Uh, congratulations to you guys. So, yeah, it's, it's about social anxieties this week, which we've been talking about for a while. I think we've made the point many times, as a lot of people have, we're not the first to say this, that you can look back in history over the decades, over the eras, and you can see what the anxieties, what the fears of a population are by mm-hmm. their horror movies. Yeah, absolutely. Because, because right, horror when it is popular, when people really are are interested and so they go, it tends to be because it, well, obviously, it taps into what you're afraid of. And so you can see with every generation, you can pick out what it is by the the most common themes in horror and the most popular horror movies, what it is that particular time period finds most frightening. Right. And uh, one of those, very recent, is, is going to be on our top five here uh, in a few minutes. But there's some others that came up in the last few years that kind of shows you things that bring out anxieties in the current population. You've got, like, The Witch, yeah. which we've talked about many times. There are a lot of themes going on in there, but one that I that really struck me was the theme of radicalization. Right. And what leads someone down that path. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And, and like you said, there are a lot of different ways to read that film. But I think one of the strongest ways is to look at it in that way. And um, and then another thing that I think, and none of these have been hugely popular, but I think you can see a lot of films that sort of tap into the anxiety around the Internet, around social media, around sort of the inability to control your own privacy and yeah. the inability to sort of quarantine something once it's online, once it, quote, goes viral. Yeah, I think a lot of films tried to do that, many not very well, but, no. some, but some have done a pretty good job. Uh, in fact, uh it's been a couple of years ago, the movie Unfriended. Yeah, we both liked that. Yeah, I thought it was, it really surprised me, and mm-hmm. it was a lot better than I thought it would be. But you can see it in movies like Hashtag Horror. I like that, Hashtag you Horror. Okay. Yeah, I did. Rings, I did not like, and that was clearly the theme there. Yeah, didn't do it as well. The Den, I didn't like that either. But there, there have been so many in the last five or six years, which makes sense because, you know, social media is just where everybody sure. is. But it's interesting, I think a lot of times horror films are preoccupied with what teens are doing and are maybe not 
careful or wise enough to do, right. which is why I think that you can find from the beginning of, of the genre why teenage sexuality is it's like an underlying theme across all eras. And, and more recently, one of the ones that did it probably better than any film has ever done it is it follows. Mm-hmm. Right. But but it's just that is a, that is a particular anxiety that I think every generation faces. Yeah. And that one did it very well. Um, it follows. We always love we always talked about that. On a few different occasions mm-hmm. that we like that very much. So that's just kind of a, the different ways some of the more recent movies have dealt with social anxieties. But we're going to get going with our countdown, and it's fuzzy math. We've got a top six, top five. And at number six, it's three backpackers headed to Slovak City with a promise to meet their hedonistic expectations uh, with no idea of the hell that awaits them from 2005 Eli Roth's Hostel. Please, please just let me go. Please. You want to go? Is that what you want? Is this the first time an Eli Roth film has made it into our countdown? We haven't always been that kind to a lot of his movies, I think for good reason. But yeah, this one... um is better than a lot. What it does, I think, more than his other films, it really taps the very current social anxiety of the time. And in doing that, and in being so um, sort of unexpectedly popular, really ushered in a, a brand new wave of horror. And so Hassel came out in 2005. In 2004, photos and videos of torture right, committed by uh, Americans to de- detainees at Abu Ghraib Detention Center sort of created... It was almost the unthinkable, right, is that all of the sudden in the United States, people were actually debating the merits of torture. Now, that in my entire lifetime, that conversation had never happened. Not only that, but you have these terrible photos on the news Mm -hmm. with the promise of even worse photos that That we're not allowed to see. Exactly. So right away. Then your imagination just gets gone running wild. Exactly. And this is a manifestation of those t- types of things where it's just, yeah, for fun, for sport, for vacation, yeah. we get to torture and kill people. Right. And of course, what happens in the horror genre is they take this kernel of anxiety and then they, you know, explode it in very sort of hyperbolic ways. Because, you know, it hadn't been that long since, you know, all of the sort of Eastern European different wars had happened, you know, um, and there was genocide. And then so these countries were just sort of opening up in the last few years to sort of tourism, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so that was really the concept here was that, but it was still very sort of Wild West. So these these particular tourists were looking for something wild, something new. Right. And, and then what they found was another niche of very, very wealthy people who were also looking to feed their own fantasies in a way that you can't do just anywhere. And it's, I'm not saying that it's a great film. It isn't a great film, but it is a, it is a fascinating concept and nightmarishly brought to life. Yeah, and the original trailers build the movie as, quote, inspired by true events. And there's a bit of a legend there that Eli Roth had said that he found a Thai website that advertised itself as a, quote, murder vacation, offering users the chance to actually torture and kill people for the price of $10,000. Now, according to that story, videos of a random person walking into a room and shooting somebody were posted on the Internet. And, again, apparently Roth showed that site to Quentin Tarantino, and then the two developed the idea for the film. And then, apparently, they said later, 
on an internet interview that they have no idea whether if that website was real mm-hmm. or not. Mm-hmm. So legends get spun. Sure. The film was considerably better than his previous effort. Mm-hmm. Just the topic and the the very specific sort of different rooms, different approaches. It was so barbaric and mean. And I think it really tapped that idea that, especially in the United States, where we'd always grown up to believe that, you know, we were the, the white knights. Right. The idea, the moral authority, right? The idea that in our in our culture we were harboring people who felt like this was justifiable. Um, although Eli Roth doesn't represent the film as anything in it is being justifiable, it's wealthy people who are preying on other people, which is another social anxiety in and of itself. But I think that again, I'm not a big Eli Roth fan, but I think that. He executed a very specific type of of nightmare here, and he did it pretty effectively. And again, as I said, it was a a boom of torture horror after that. Now, a lot of people have lumped Wolf Creek into that subgenre. It, of course, came out around the same time. But and you and I will agree that if you're going to call that torture horror, it is easily the best of all of those options. And most of the films that followed Hostel were just bad. They were just they were mean and and there was nothing entertaining and there was nothing enriching and there was nothing worthwhile really about them. They really just fed on the ugliest yeah. part of human nature and fell into the torture porn mm-hmm. role category. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of the torture in this movie, wink, wink, uh, happened in room 237. Oh, ho! and that's hostile tops in the number six in our top six, top five. From 2005 and going back quite a ways for number five. It's a practical man returning to his homeland who's attacked by a creature of folklore and infected with a horrific disease. His disciplined mind tells him cannot possibly exist. Back to 1941 for the original The Wolfman. Lieutenant Jugular. That's the way Jenny Williams was killed? Yes. Find something? Animal tracks. Whoever is bitten by a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf himself. Oh, don't hand me that. You're just wasting your time. The wolf beat you, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he did. As we'll see with another monster movie we're going to talk about, the anxiety here is rooted in war. In fact, according to the documentary on the uh, recent Wolfman DVD collection, the script was influenced heavily by writer Kurt Siodnax. I think I pronounced that right. His experiences in Nazi Germany. Makes sense. Yeah, Makes sense. I think you can trace most of the universal monster movies back to an anxiety about global war, right? So at, at that point in history, we'd never experienced war on a global level before. And, and then also, uh, a lot of times with sort of the monster movie concept, it, it it seemed to be a reflection of the fact that weaponry had expanded and medicine had expanded to a degree that we were seeing more soldiers return home disfigured beyond recognition. And that was something else that people had not really seen before, certainly hadn't seen to this degree because we'd never had a war that everyone was involved in. And so uh, all of those things played into a lot of the different uh, monster movies at the time, and monster movies were what was in vogue at the time. The Wolfman, actually, as a, as well as a lot of these, the villain, right, is just this sort of shadowy European, aristocratic, hard to define kind of villainry, and that infects 
an upstanding good guy. And again, it's just shadows of war, shadows of war with Europe. And and um, and then also, I think one of the reasons and I've said this before about this film, one of the reasons that it stands up is because the villain who and it's interestingly enough is an American, which doesn't fit the storyline at all. But the actor is and he doesn't pretend to have an English accent as everybody else has an accent. So he's identifiable as the character we're supposed to identify with. And the fact that he's cursed with this, it's such a sympathetic performance. And it's really, it leads you to, I think, more empathy with what turns out to be the villain than anything that we'd seen in in other films up to that. Yeah, because as you alluded to, the Wolfman character can easily be seen as a metaphor for the Nazis. You've got an otherwise good, upstanding man is transformed into a vicious killing animal. And then he knows who his next victim will be when he sees the symbol of a pentagram, which can resemble a star. Right. So there are many, many metaphors going on there yeah. that, that fall into the man's inhumanity to man yep. and how this could happen. That at one minute you think people are good and the next minute there are torturing and killing and taking part in genocide. Right. And what's interesting about the just the Wolfman character across all of horror is that it's it's just another Jekyll and Hyde type storyline, right? Where a good person can be driven to this monstrous behavior. You know, the Incredible Hulk is the same idea. I mean, it's just it's a it's a very common idea in literature throughout the ages, but the way this particular film is crafted, it's very clearly symbolic of um the global wars that we had been facing one and two. Yeah. And what's interesting about this movie for the werewolf genre is that many of the modern myths about werewolves originated with this film, such as a person becoming a werewolf through a bite. Uh, The only way to kill a werewolf is with a silver bullet. Uh, Werewolves marking their victims with pentagrams, changing into full moon. A lot of them originated with this movie and bringing those types of, of legends mm-hmm. into into popular culture. And also, Bela Lugosi mm-hmm. has a small part in this. Yes, he's the gypsy. He's great. Um, yeah, he's super fun in this movie. So the original The Wolfman from 1941, number five on our list of top social anxiety horror, and that moves us up to number five. Boy, a favorite, a classic, one that we've talked about a few times. A young couple move into an apartment only to be surrounded by peculiar neighbors and occurrences from 1968 Rosemary's Baby. What have you done to it? What have you done to its eyes? He has his father's eyes. What are you talking about? Guy's eyes are normal. What have you done to him, you maniac? Satan is his father, not Guy. Hail Adrian! Hail Satan! This was a really high time for social anxiety. The late 60s, early 70s. I mean, there there were so many possibilities. Drugs and sex and Vietnam and everything. Right. The hippie culture, generation uh, gaps. I mean, it was huge. But what's interesting about Rosemary's Baby, and you can see it actually, that's I think the important thing why these particular movies were chosen because it wasn't just the one, right? It it speaks to a theme. And in in 1960, the pill was approved, mm-hmm. right? And I think while obviously that made many, many, many people very happy, this notion of of science meddling in something as intimate and perhaps, you know, spiritual as as childbirth 
caused a lot of anxiety, not just because of sort of the God aspect of it, but also control. Who? So does this mean women can control their own bodies or does this mean that science, which at 1960 was primarily men, are manipulating women's bodies so that men can have as much sex as they want? I mean, there's a lot of anxiety to unpack there. And Rosemary's Baby was the best of of the films that came out in that era that really kind of spoke to that. There are a lot of great ones. It's Alive. I love that. The Brood, you know, I love that. But yeah. I mean, um, and then you can also look at really, there were so many movies where there is some sort of a fetus-like monster that even, you know, uh, sci-fi films and things like that. But the thing about Rosemary's Baby is that it is issues of control of her own control. She doesn't have her own control of her own body. And then also the God issue, because of course it is a satanic cult that is using her as a conduit. Well, not only that, but some people would say there's some interpretations uh, move toward Rosemary's horror as the psychological horror of an anti-Semitic person in a mixed marriage, mixed faith marriage. Uh, As a sheltered Catholic girl, she might view her part Jewish, part Protestant husband as evil his Jewish and Protestant friends as Satan worshipers. Her baby is the spawn of Satan for not being baptized. Wow. That's heavy, George. Heavy stuff. <laughs> I got to bring something to the table <laughs> every now and then. But when we talked about this movie before, it's part of Roman Polanski's trilogy. Right. Of, and, and another theme, I guess, urban, yeah. urban horror, urban living, yeah. which was a, a kind of a movement in this era as well. Yeah, absolutely. But I think, you know, for me, and I've said this before, uh, Mia Farrow is is absolutely the picture of fragility in this film. Yeah. You know, when you see her, she's so tiny. Of course, her hair is cropped very short to make her seem even more childlike. Yeah, or, and that became a rage of a did. hairstyle at the and time. Did. And she's hugely pregnant, and she's running in the street, and she's trying desperately to find help. And the fact is that she does no longer control her body or, more importantly, right here, her reproductive system. Yeah. And... That is going to lead to evil, evil incarnate, in fact. Yeah, and the other, we didn't mention the other two movies in uh, Polanski's trilogy here are Repulsion yeah. from 1965 and then The Tenet, yeah. which from 1976, which I have not seen. Oh, it's not a horror film, but it is very um, tense. Yeah. It's, yeah. The it's great, around, though. Or centered around urban living. So, yeah, it's definitely a classic, and it's one that it's the first time that um, Roman Polanski adapted an author's work, mm-hmm. and the author, Ira Levine, mm-hmm. said it was an incredibly faithful adaptation right, yeah. of the book. Yeah. That, that and, a lot of times authors aren't happy about you know, movies of their work, but apparently he was. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I mean, there are so many, there are so many reasons why this film is, is a classic. The cinematography, for example, mm-hmm. is just spectacular um, and, and does so much to build the atmosphere. And of course, all of the performances are great. And one of the things that adds to the mood, many of the scenes are shot in either one continuous take or those minimal cuts that make it are, look like. that make it mm-hmm. look way that, that can be skillfully done and yeah. are they're still done that today. Uh, they kind of add to the the mood uh, when you're just going around because so much of it is in that that apartment. It is almost all of it. Yeah, and you feel like you're led to feel like you're spying on her. Yeah, which again I think just leads to the overall idea that that she just has no control over her life and what's happening to her. Very uh, horrific way of dealing and bringing out various social anxieties from the late 1960s. And you say, boy, what a pot boiling time yes. of all sorts of combating. Social anxieties uh, were coming out there. 1968, Rosemary's Baby, and at number four. And at number three, one that just came out this year, and we've been kind of itching to talk about in a, in a more detailed way. And this is the perfect time. In fact, this kind of fed into this topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's from this year. A young African-American man visits his Caucasian girlfriend's mysterious family estate 
Jordan Peele's Get Out. Do they know I'm black? Should they? Do you smoke in front of my daughter? I'm gonna quit. She'd take care of that for you. How? Hypnosis. I'm good, actually. So look, I go do my research. Apparently, a whole bunch of brothers been missing in this suburb. But it's cool. Bro, how you not scared of this, man? Get out! Yo! Sink into the floor. Wait, 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 wait. Sink. No, 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 no. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. First of all, it's so nice that this has become such a huge hit. It is. It's not, great. Not only because it justifies Jordan Peele as a very, very talented filmmaker. Yeah, you know, uh, who's obviously broken free, broken away from the idea of his just being a comic. And he's a great comic. Right. And Key and Peele is a hilarious show. Right. And then Keanu was a very, very funny movie. I we enjoy so. it very much. Yeah. But his skill as a writer and a director are on full display here. It's amazing what he managed to do with his feature debut. That's crazy. Yeah, there, and there are so many obvious racial anxieties going on here. But the big one, I think, getting down to it, and I saw the very good interview with Jordan Peele talking about it. And he said, in a nutshell, he was just commenting on the post-racial lie, basically mm -hmm. after mm -hmm. President Obama got elected and got elected twice, that that means there's no more racism in the world. Right. And there's so many ways, both sharp and funny and, and spot on, that he just calls bullshit yeah. on that all over this movie. And that's what it does so well. It does. And I think, here's what I think. One of the reasons that this film worked so well for me is how incredibly well-versed, first of all, he is in horror as a genre. Because, yeah, you can tell he's a fan. Yeah, so f the foundation of this film is that he has he has inverted the concept of the last girl. Mm -hmm. So the beautiful white young woman who is at the center of 95% of horror films, right? Because that's the person who is most likely to be victimized. That's the person that you have to hope has the strength to get through it. That's the person that you have to root, can beat all odds and get out of the situation, is now what it, it, most... most um, Populations would consider a very strong individual character, which would be the single black male. So in just placing this character in this position, he has inverted everything in horror and in such a brilliant way that especially just from the opening sequence, that opening sequence is flat out genius. Yeah, because it basically says, look, just being a black man in America today is scary. Yeah, that is. And that that's it. I mean, this is as scary as anything in a horror movie. And the, one of the reasons I, I played that song at the beginning, uh, Redbone by Childish Gambino, that's opens the film. Mm -hmm. And in the interview that I watched, um, Jordan Peele said he wanted to use that because of the stay woke lyrics and the fact that he is he wanted to honor the responsibility of giving an Af African-American character that makes smart choices mm -hmm. and does reasonable things and and you know, represents that audience in a genre that, for the most part, hasn't been represented very well. No, uh, no. I mean, I think that you can find some films in, in recent years where some of the ugly stereotypes have disappeared. But for the majority of all horror films, it's pretty well documented that there's usually one black character and he usually dies pretty quickly into the film. True. And that's another brilliant maneuver in that opening prologue. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, he's taken, but we're not saying that this is a token character. We're speaking to, as you said, the reversal of the final girl thing yeah. and just the fact that this alone 
has has a chance to turn into a horrific thing for this character simply because of who he is. Yeah, because uh, one of the things I think is so brilliant about that is that, you know, I- I've seen that particular sequence, right? And I-, I have seen that sequence in at least a dozen films, but it's a girl. It's a white girl. And you immediately know you don't need the score to tell you. You immediately know this girl is in jeopardy mm-hmm. because she's walking alone. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if it's a nice suburban street. It wouldn't matter anyway. She's on the phone. You know, and she doesn't have to do something stupid. You already know you're watching a horror movie. Therefore, this female character is in jeopardy. What I think made uh, this film so much more relevant is that we're used to thinking about that as being sure reality, but also a horror movie. We're not used to thinking about what happened in this prologue as being reality. And the fact of the matter is, it's very close to reality. And that's what made it so incredibly powerful. Yeah, and there's so many great moments, not only like that, but more quick, subtle takes. You've got a thing like, um, you know, we're going to, spoilers here, if you haven't already guessed, and hopefully you've seen the movie by now. But um, Catherine Keener's character controls his hypnotism with a literal silver spoon, right. uh, you know, and you've got these two doctors basically mm-hmm. working from home mm-hmm. because they don't have to have think, you know, there was a, a recent um, in the last few months. I think there was an actual African-American doctor on an airplane who tried to come to somebody's aid and they didn't believe that she was a doctor. Wow. Where now you've got the white doctors. They can just sit at home and they don't have to prove that they're doctors. Come to our house. We're going to tell you we're doctors. Mm-hmm. You know, little little things like that. This just brilliantly called BS all over the place. And um, that's one of the many things I love about this movie. And also, since you've got the the white characters, you know, playing bingo to see who gets to take take over the body. Mm-hmm. There's a, a really great essay I read by a writer named Rebecca Carroll who talked about you this movie turning cultural appropriation yeah. into cultural harvest. Yeah. Just basically they will take over a black body, but they will know in their own heads that they're still white. Yeah. You know, it is a stunning film. It's a stunning achievement in writing and, um, you know, but also casting. I mean, that's the thing is that this isn't just sort of a pedestal for preaching. It is a great, incredibly entertaining, yeah. very tense, tense often very, funny yep. horror film. I yep. mean, it's it's just a brilliantly as, put together movie. As Jordan Peele said himself, it's funny, but there are no jokes. And it's not. And that's a big difference. Yeah, it is not a horror comedy by no, any stretch. No, but, no, no. But, uh, yeah, but it is punctuated with, with laugh out loud moments. And by the way, look for, he does get Key, Keegan-Michael Key in there at the end when Rose is looking over her next prospects. Nice. Yeah, he's in there too, nice. so he got a little bit. But yeah, we love it so much. If, if you haven't seen it, well, hopefully you have because we've been talking all about it. <laughs> but uh, that's one that I would see again in a heartbeat. And that is number three on our social anxiety horror list uh, just from this year, Jordan Peele's Get Out. And by the way, before we move off of talking about Get Out, we want to recommend a movie called Dutchman from 1967. It deals with a lot of the same themes. And in fact... I think there's a documentary about this movie coming out later this year, but it's very blunt. It's based on a play, very blunt, very intelligently written. Wouldn't really call it a horror movie, but definitely worth seeing. Only about an hour long, 55 minutes or so, and I think you can just find it on YouTube called Dutchman. Check it out. Okay, moving up to number two, another classic from 1969. There is panic throughout the nation as the dead suddenly come back to life. Night of the Living Dead. Night. Of the living dead. A bizarre adventure in fear. An experience in shock, more shattering than your strangest nightmare. Night 
of the living dead. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! And we were just talking so much about Get Out and Jordan Peele. He has cited this film as an inspiration for making Get Out because the film had an African-American protagonist. Yeah. One of a million things that George Romero did right in his... Again, one of the reasons, and, and I think, I, I guarantee you that we're going to see the same thing from Get Out. One of the reasons that, that these these films in particular made the list is because in most cases, they basically created their own subgenre. Mm-hmm. And in this case, clearly he did, because it was the first zombie film that was, they're resurrected from the dead, they eat brains, or they eat they eat humans, the bite infects other, it was, this was the first film to do that. Prior to this, they were all... Um, the sort of voodoo zombies. So, but aside from that, because that's not really the reason to talk about this again, in 1969, the, the number of, of social issues affecting the United States and the world were almost countless civil rights, um, the sexual revolution, Vietnam, Mm -hmm. you know, the generation gap with hippies and and straights. And, and the thing about this movie is that without being preachy, he, he, he touches on all of that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think, and we've talked about this before, one of the reasons that it is as powerful a film and stays with you as uh, the way that it does is because of the lead character and because of the end of the movie. Yes. Um, it, you know, it, because it becomes social commentary as if you didn't already know it. You know, at the end, they just, th- he's just out with it. This is social commentary. This is what it's like. And the other thing that I think is fascinating about it is that it takes place not in suburbia, not in an urban area, but really in the sprawling countryside. So the people that prior to 1969 were used to thinking is like sort of wholesome salt of the earth. And this movie doesn't suggest that they're not. It just says there's more there's more to it than that. Right. Which really goes along with today, because that's that's one of the big conflicts we hear about politically now. Like, oh, those heartland people, they're the real Americans, Mm -hmm. you know, and this is sort of touching. There's there's more going on there, as you say, than maybe meets the eye. Right. I mean, you know, what meets the eye is a great zombie movie, one with iconic lines that builds great tension, that does a lot of things. And he just, with some sly casting, you know, and some interesting editing, and again, a a powerhouse of an ending, you know, he he made an indelible stamp about what the United States was like in 1969. Yeah, the performances, uh, of course, our buddy, Judith... um, Judith O'D. Judith O'D. You got your picture with her. Mm-hmm. She was very nice. Um, but Dwayne Jones, who sadly has passed away, he was so good for so many reasons. He brought such a a calm, an intelligent quiet. Mm-hmm. You know, he he dealt with things like we talked about. Um, Jordan Peele wanting his characters to make smart decisions mm-hmm. and be reasonable. That's what this character did. Yep. He reasoned things out and he went about it in not a emotional way but in a pragmatic way right. trying to figure out and and be that sort of a thinking hero which wasn't not only have you not really seen an african-american hero but one like this no certainly not in 1969 and romero has often said that he got the lead because he was the most talented actor and, and you watch the film he clearly is that oh yeah but i i can't believe that that romero wasn't wiser than that i mm-hmm. think he knew exactly what he was doing yeah. and thank god he did because again it is it is maybe the reason why the film remains so very relevant it really does it really does from uh, 1969 out of the living dead number two on our social anxiety horror list and that leaves room for one big monster at the top from 1954 american nuclear weapons testing results in the creation of a seemingly unstoppable dinosaur-like beast godzilla 
Now, the big thing to differentiate here that this is Godzilla and not Godzilla King of the Monsters, the one with Raymond Burr, because that's the one I thought for many, many years was the original Godzilla, but that came two years later. Right. This is the original Japanese Godzilla. Yeah, Ishiro Honda. Right. His his version. And that's the thing, too, right? It's a Japanese film, and it is absolutely clearly, oh, without question or reaction, to um to the atomic bombs dropped on, on Japan during World War II and the sort of the aftermath and the struggle to survive and move forward. And, and it affected the entire world. The film did because it spoke to the same anxiety. If it could happen in Japan, it could happen anywhere. The, this power now existed, and who, who was to say that the that the right people had it? You know, had control of it. I mean, I doubt that there's ever been a global anxiety like the Cold War. Yeah, and not just looking at it, looking at uh, the nuclear bomb for this movie in a metaphorical sense, but really the movie's opening scene right. was inspired by the Lucky Dragon incident, where the fishing boat, known as the Lucky Dragon, st- strayed too close to what was named the most powerful nuclear test ever, and then was contaminated with radiation. And a crew on board a fishing boat, just going about their normal day, they saw this bright flash of light, it catches their attention, and they're soon bombarded with radioactivity. And so the only difference is that the boat catches fire and sinks in the movie, and if you look closely at the life preserver in the movie, you will see the marking number five. And that's a reference to the ship, Lucky Dragon number five, which was one of the inspirations for the film. So, wow. yeah, it's not only metaphorically, but very literally are they saying this is a result of this new nuclear age that we were suddenly in. Right. And and again, like so many of the other films on this list, it created, I mean, the, oh, yeah. I mean, it, it absolutely was a watershed change in horror output from from Godzilla forward. 95% of, of all horror movies were creature features that had to do with scientists who unleashed a cataclysm, and this was God's response yep. to their meddling. Yep. Uh, and of course, spoiler alert, anybody that has seen the new uh, Kong Skull Island movie and stayed to the very last scene, you know that we're not done by a long shot no. with these movies. So, uh and that's why it's number one, really, on this that, list. That is, it's yeah. not because it's not because the original film Godzilla is a better film than Rosemary's Baby or Get Out or anything else on the list. It's because of of the films on this list. This one speaks the most clearly to the anxieties, not even in the United States, but globally at that time. Yeah, and it, and it, as you said, it, it launched such a new universe of horror films. I mean, all over the place Right. Now. So unlike, for example, Hostel, which because of Hostel, we saw a new subgenre of horror, but other types of horror films were still being made. After Godzilla, that was it. That was it. You had creature features. That was it. And of course, you have to mention the visual effects. Yeah. It won the Japanese Academy Award for Best Visual Effects and actually was nominated for the Japanese Best Picture. Nice. Only one of the Godzilla movies to do that. But yeah, the, you know, they got the guy in the suit and okay, you look back on it today, mm-hmm. but that was really the only way they could do it. And when you look at it, it's pretty impressive with what <laughs> they had to work with, right. really. I mean, not when you're going to compare it with Kong Skull Island or anything like right, that. Right, right, You know, and apparently the guy in the suit had quite a time you know, dealing with, <laughs> dealing with with that suit. And it became sort of a joke, you know, in movies all the way through Pee-wee's Big Adventure when right, he drives right, right. the bike through the through the soundstage. But, I uh, love that you worked that in. <laughs> just for you. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but at the time, it was quite a groundbreaking a visual achievement as well. So perfectly sums up the anxieties that came with the nuclear age. Right. And that's why it is number one on our list of social anxiety horror, the original 1954's 
Godzilla. So what do you think? Uh, where do we go wrong? Where do we stray off the path? Let us know. As always, Twitter is the best way. You can start with a conversation with us, and then you can go off on your own, <laughs> <laughs> as we have seen happen from time to time. But we love that. We're at Mad Wolf, M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. And uh, on Facebook, of course, we're Mad Wolf Columbus. Always love to connect any way you can, and we certainly hope that you will connect at our next Fright Club Live because it is a special edition. It is our 100th podcast. Very exciting. The podcast is going to be about rituals, and we are going to tape it live at the Gateway Film Center, as we do once a month. So April 12th, please come out. The film we're going to show is the Spanish-language original, We Are What We Are, which if you have not seen it, don't yet. Come see it with us, but it's awesome. God, I love that movie. Hard to believe we've done 100 of these. I know. So again, we have to thank Daryl and the gang at Golden Spiral Media. Oh, thank you so much, Daryl. For giving us a chance to do this and keeping it rolling, so thank you. Yeah, we're planning a nice party. We're going to have you know a little happy hour in the torpedo room there, as always. Drink special, some fun. Pins? uh, Pins. We're going to have the new and improved Fright Club t-shirt 2.0, the new edition. And uh, I think it's going to be great. So, and some uh, super cool prizes. Super cool prizes, some passes from the Gateway, some mm-hmm. concert tickets, just mm-hmm. a lot of fun. We want to want you to help us celebrate our 100th podcast. We'll have a good time doing it. So we hope to see you then. If you can, again, keep the conversation going through the week until we meet again on the podcast and let us know what you thought about this. So until next time, I'm George Wolf. I'm Hope Madden. And this is the Fright Club Podcast. Stay frightful, my friends. Stay frightful, my friends.